Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Earlville is a small city of around 800 residents located in eastern Iowa, Delaware County. The city is surrounded by farmland and the bustling farming industry is how many of the residents earn a living. The size of the city gives Earlville a real small-town feel. It's the kind of place where people raise their children, and then their children go on to raise their own children there. It was just after 12 noon on November 10, 2019, when police in Earlville received a frantic 911 call from a local man named Todd Mullis. Delaware County exclaimed to the 911 dispatcher that his wife, Amy Mullis, had somehow injured herself on their farm and was now unresponsive. He explained that nobody had witnessed the incident, but it appeared as though Amy had somehow fallen and impaled herself on a corn rake. Sir, do you feel comfortable doing CPR? I can try. I'll try anything. She, is she flat on the... Are you able to get her flat across maybe the seat? That one, too. Go on. Come on, just spawn. She's cold. Come on. Come on. The 911 operator talked Todd through CPR compressions, but Todd feared that his wife was dead. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 41 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, 
the award-winning true crime podcast. Amy was born on the 23rd of January to Robert and Peggy Fuller. She was raised in the Eldora area, and in 1997, she graduated from Eldora New Providence High School. Amy then enrolled in Kirkwood Community College, where she graduated as a registered nurse. In 2004, Amy married Todd Mullis at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Manchester. They settled down on Todd's pig farm, located in rural Delaware County. It was an expansive property with two large hog sheds that were around the length of a football field. In front of the hog sheds was the bungalow where Amy and Todd lived. From the home, they could see directly into the hog sheds. Todd came from a family of farmers, and he purchased his own farm back in 2009. Amy found employment as a nurse in the emergency department of Regional Medical Center, while Todd worked long hours on the farm. The couple went on to have three children, Tristan, Taylor, and Wyatt. It was decided that Amy would stay home with the children and help Todd out with the farm. In addition to taking care of the children and the farm, Amy was a member of the Delaware County Pork Producers Board. She was passionate about the outdoors and enjoyed farming, hunting, fishing, and camping. It was something that the family could all do together, and family bonding was important to Amy. In her free time, she liked to design and make t-shirts, and she always made sure that her garden was well manicured and taken care of. Above all else, though, Amy's children were the most important thing in her life. After the 911 call, paramedics and police responded to the scene within minutes. Todd directed them to a road midway between the Mullis' home at 255th Avenue and Regional Medical Center. Todd had begun driving Amy to Regional Medical Center as he called 911. The 911 operator asked him to pull over near a home that was under construction and await an ambulance. Deputy Luke Thompson was the first to arrive on the scene. I saw a young man looked like he had blood on his coat flagging me down as I pulled up. Deputy Thompson pulled over to the side of the road and rushed to Amy, who was crumpled inside the pickup truck. There was blood seeping through her t-shirt, and she was motionless. She was unresponsive and not breathing, no pulse. She had um, some bruising on her jaw, um, another bruise on her right arm, I believe, and then she had uh, she had quite a bit of blood on her, on her, on her clothes. Was she able to communicate at all? No. Amy was transported to Regional Medical Center, but she was pronounced dead on arrival. Todd was taken aside by investigators who had been called to the hospital and asked to recite that morning's events. According to Todd, he had been working in the hog building with a couple's 13-year-old son, Tristan. They were getting the building ready for the upcoming arrival of some young pigs. Tristan was setting up portable heaters while Todd was setting up equipment that would provide water to the pens. Amy was helping Todd and Tristan out and had been cleaning light fixtures. Todd explained that Amy had just had surgery several days prior and she had been suffering from dizzy spells. That morning was the first morning that Amy had left the house since her surgery. As Amy was cleaning, Todd said that he observed her having a dizzy spell. She appeared unsteady on her feet. Todd said to investigators that he had told Amy to go inside and rest 
but asked that before she went inside, if she could grab a pet carrier from a nearby shed and place it by the shop, which was a large outbuilding on the farm. There were some kittens, and Todd wanted to put them in the pet carrier to keep them safe when he was using heavy machinery later in the afternoon. A little while later, Todd went outside to look for the pet carrier he had asked Amy to retrieve. He couldn't see it, and he couldn't see Amy. Todd assumed that she must have gone inside to rest without leaving the pet carrier out. He asked Tristan to go and check on his mother. Todd said he continued working in the pig shed, but seconds later, a deafening scream echoed throughout the farm. It was Tristan. Todd followed the sound of the scream to the shed nearby. Tristan was standing just before the doorway. Todd's eyes then transfixed onto Amy. She was in a crouched position just inside the shed doorway. A corn rake was impaled in her back, with blood seeping through her t-shirt. Todd said he ran over to Amy and attempted to pull the corn rake from her back. The shed was very narrow, and the corn rake was lodged in Amy's flesh. As he tried to pull it out, it kept hitting the fertilizer crates that were lined up against the shed wall. Todd then laid Amy down on her stomach and was able to pull the corn rake out. He said that he couldn't be sure if all four of the tines of the corn rake were impaled in Amy's back, but he didn't believe that they were. Todd picked Amy up and carried her out of the shed and over to his pickup truck. He placed Amy into the pickup truck and sped off in the direction of the hospital. On the way, he called 911 and then met paramedics halfway. After Amy was pronounced dead, her body was transported to the medical examiner's office for a cause of death to be determined. The sheriff announced that her death was nothing more than a tragic, freak accident. Todd and Tristan returned home that evening, and Todd had to explain to the couple's other children that their mother wasn't coming home. While Amy's death was initially ruled an accident, on the 7th of December, investigators announced that it had been reclassified as a homicide. Amy's autopsy had concluded that she died from sharp force injuries to the torso. With the death now a homicide, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation took over the case. They asked that if anybody had any information about Amy's murder, to get in contact immediately. Sheriff John LeClaire was being very tight-lipped with their investigation. He refused to announce if there was a suspect in the murder, but said, We have interviewed a number of Mrs. Mullis's friends and family members, and that's all I can say. Towards the end of February, Todd was arrested and charged with the first-degree murder of his wife. In announcing the arrest, investigators also released more details of Amy's autopsy. It was found that she had been stabbed multiple times in the back with a corn rake. The injuries that Amy had sustained did not correlate with what Todd claimed had happened. There were six puncture wounds to her body, two of which were at an upward angle and four of which were at a downward angle. Dr. Kelly Cruz, who performed the autopsy, determined that Amy had been stabbed with the corn rake at least twice, if not three times. The corn rake which had killed Amy had four tines, yet Amy had six wounds to her back. So there were two different directions of the six puncture wounds. The rightmost wounds, A, B, C, and D, so the one by her chest tube underneath her armpit, the one left to it, and then the two that are on top of each other, 
those all go from back to front. So when we describe direction, we do it in terms of anatomic position. So anatomic position is with the person standing straight, looking straight forward with their feet forward. And then their hands are down by their side with their palms out, and so your thumbs are facing out. So with Miss Mullis in that position, those four wounds went back to front, right to left, and downward. The leftmost, E and F, also went back to front, right to left, but they went upward. There was also evidence that Amy had sustained blunt force injuries to her jawline and on the knuckles of both hands. She additionally had scrapes and bruises, which would have occurred immediately before or during her murder. Dr. Cruz believed some of the injuries to Amy's hands were defensive wounds that she sustained while trying to fend off the blows. A second pathologist was called in to review the autopsy. Dr. Craig Borden corroborated Dr. Cruz's findings. The injuries were not consistent with falling onto a corn rake, and the two pathologists determined that somebody had swung the corn rake multiple times at Amy, ultimately killing her. Investigators had been suspicious of Todd from the very beginning. Doctors at the hospital had told them that based on Amy's injuries... They did not believe she had accidentally fallen onto the corn rake. They needed to find a motive and began looking into the couple's marriage. They learned that Amy and Todd hadn't been happy in their marriage for a number of years. In May of 2018, Amy started having an affair with another man, and this affair was still ongoing at the time of her death. Upon learning of the strain in the marriage, investigators spoke for a second time with Todd. He acknowledged that Amy had an affair, but he said it was back in 2013. Todd said that he had uncovered the affair by reviewing Amy's cell phone records. He said that her affair had devastated him and completely shattered the trust that he had in his wife. When he confronted Amy and the man, both of them denied it, and things slowly but surely got back to normal in the marriage. According to Todd, since that hiccup, he and Amy had patched things up and they were madly in love. Investigators knew this to be false. They had learned from Amy's friends and family that after learning of the first affair, Todd had become increasingly controlling and paranoid. He demanded that Amy keep him apprised of every single one of her movements. From meeting a friend for lunch to simply doing the grocery shopping, Amy always had to let Todd know precisely where she was and who she was with at any given moment. Amy was extremely unhappy in the marriage, and she longed to escape. For the sake of her children, however, she put up with it for the next couple of years. Then, in early 2018, Amy began a new affair with a man named Jerry Frazier. Jerry was a field manager at the farm, and he knew both Amy and Todd well. At first, the relationship was nothing more than flirting, but eventually it turned romantic. Amy and Jerry met up frequently, at least once a week, but oftentimes more. They would meet up in secret on the farm, on the back roads, and even sometimes at local motels. Jerry said to investigators that the last time he had seen Amy was on the 5th of November. Amy told him she wanted to leave Todd, but she was petrified. She made different notes, or uh, not notes, but said she was felt like a slave or a um, hostage around there. One time she did say that if he ever found out, she would disappear. Amy had told Jerry that if Todd ever found out she was cheating on him, he may potentially make her disappear. 
With suspicions against Todd mounting, investigators decided to examine Amy's phone. They found text messages that she had sent her friends, which read that things at home were tense. She had confided in friends that she was terrified of what would happen to her if Todd ever found out about the second affair. During one conversation, Amy told a friend that if she ever turned up missing, to look for her body in a wooded area that she and Todd had just recently purchased. Amy also said that if she were ever found dead, it was Todd who had killed her. Amy's unhappiness in her marriage was not a secret amongst her circle of friends. It was something they chatted about frequently, and they even nicknamed Amy Pot, which stood for Prisoner of Todd. In the months leading up to Amy's murder, she had been making tentative plans to finally leave her husband. She had arranged to have furniture available for when she eventually left Todd. Her brother, Jeff Fuller, said that Amy had often spoke with him about the divorce, and he helped to secure her some furniture for when she left. The furniture had come from their grandmother's home after she passed away. Amy asked me if she could store um, Grandma's couch and some chairs and lamps at my house um, so that she would have some furniture when she left Todd. She had told her brother that as soon as the crops were out of the field, then she would be leaving Todd and filing for a divorce. Amy knew that she would be entitled to half of the farm and the $2 million in the farm's trust. She knew that she would be able to provide for her children, but still, she was scared of how Todd may respond. She predicted that Todd would flip out when she asked for a divorce, but she had been unhappy for so long she knew that it was finally time to turn her life around. A couple of months into the second affair, Todd found out. Much like the earlier affair, Todd had been reviewing Amy's phone bill when he found more than 100 text messages between Amy and Jerry. On the morning that Todd uncovered the affair, Amy rang up a friend and cried down the phone that Todd had found out about Jerry. She told this friend that her son, Wyatt, was crying and didn't want to go to school because they were afraid that when they returned, Amy would be gone. Todd confronted Jerry about the affair, but he denied that anything was going on. Jerry tried to calm Todd down, telling him the text messages were about work-related things, such as showing her pigs. Todd did not believe him, and he expressed his suspicions to Ellen Fuller, Amy's stepmother. As he spoke about his suspicions, he was extremely angry and frustrated, his voice getting louder as each word came out. He said, Eileen, do you know what Amy did? And I said, yes, Todd, I do. And he said, I said to him, it looks like you're working things out. He said, well, we ha I have to. He said, I'm not going to lose my farm and what I've worked for. He was, he had uh, confronted the field manager. I didn't really catch a name that he specified. Um, it was his field manager. And he said that he had, you know, he had asked him about it. He had confronted he and Amy both. Earlville is a small community and word of the affair quickly spread amongst the residents. It got back to Amy's friend, Terry Stanner. Terry warned Amy that Todd was not the kind of man to mess with and said she feared that Todd would kill her when he found out. Todd also contacted Terry and asked if she had heard anything about the affair. Terry attempted to protect her friend and denied any knowledge. Rumors were circulating throughout the city, and Amy was distraught and embarrassed. In the late summer of 2018, she called her friend, Deb Sherbring, and asked if she had heard any of the rumors. Deb confirmed that she had, and Amy begged her to try and stop the rumors from spreading. 
At 8.11 a.m. on the day that Amy was killed, she texted a friend saying things were still tense with Todd. The message read, Still very tense around here. Just not sure of anything anymore. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When investigators spoke with Todd for a third time, he characterized Amy's relationship with Jerry as strictly business. Investigators informed Todd that they had spoken with witnesses who told them that Todd knew full well of the affair. He eventually conceded and said that he did know of the affair and that he had confronted both Amy and Jerry separately. Todd was unaware that investigators had, first of all, considered Jerry a person of interest in the murder. They obtained search warrants for his cell phone activity and his Gmail records. These records showed that Jerry had never strayed from his home in Anamosa, Iowa, between 10.14 a.m. on the 10th of November, when he sent Amy a text message, and 12.01 p.m. when Todd called 911. The investigation into Todd Mullis as a suspect continued. Investigators obtained a search warrant for the electronics at the Mullis' home. On an iPad that was owned by Todd, they discovered that just four days before Amy died, somebody had Googled, organs in the body, as well as killing unfaithful women, and what happens to cheaters in history. Around a month before this, somebody on the same iPad had googled, thrill of the kill, followed by, once you hunt man, you will always feel the thirst. Armed with the evidence collected thus far against Todd, investigators informed him that he was the main suspect. Special Agent John Turbot noticed that when informed of the developments, Todd appeared to be unemotional. He asked investigators what evidence they had gathered against him. Special Agent Turbot recollected, he never denied killing Amy. Todd also never inquired as to whether there were any other suspects and never implored the investigators to search for anybody else who could have committed the murder. Following Todd's arrest, he was ordered to be held on a $5 million bond. His defense team attempted to have the bond lowered to $1 million. Defense attorney Gerald Fuerhelm said that if it were lowered, then Todd would wear a GPS tracking device. He argued that Todd had been very cooperative during the investigation and that he had strong ties to the community through his extended family and through the farm. He stated, Obviously, my argument on behalf of Todd was that he was well aware that there was an investigation going on there of a serious nature, and that there was no sign of flight to avoid arrest. The prosecution fought back. 
Assistant Iowa Attorney General Denise Timmons said that the high bond was appropriate given the fact that Todd was accused of an extremely heinous crime of violence and that he was a flight risk due to the possibility he would be facing a life sentence. She said that the investigation into the murder led them to believe that Todd had spent a lot of time planning the murder of his wife. She stated, All of these things go to the fact that the defendant is a flight risk and that he is a danger to Ms. Mullis's family and the community as well. Judge Thomas Bitter sided with the prosecution and refused to lower the bond. An arraignment was scheduled for mid-March, and when Todd appeared in court, he pleaded not guilty to Amy's murder. His defense team would then attempt to have the case moved away from Delaware County. They argued that a glare of publicity was focused on the case and that many people within the community already believed he was guilty. Todd and Amy were a very well-known couple in the community due to their farm. Todd had lived in Delaware County his entire life, and Amy had worked closely with law enforcement during her time working as an emergency room nurse. The defense were adamant that the publicity had resulted in a negative public bias and that prejudice was so pervasive that Todd could not get a fair trial. Defense Fuerhelm provided numerous print and online articles from newspapers in the area, as well as broadcast and radio stations, as well as social media postings. Assistant Attorney Timmons fought back, responding that the defense had failed to show that prejudice existed in Delaware County to the extent that an impartial jury could not be found. The judge agreed with the defense this time, and the murder trial was moved from Delaware County to Dubuque County. Several pretrial motions followed, some of which focused on Tristan, Amy and Todd's son. There was much debate over whether he would testify during the upcoming murder trial. Judge Bitter ruled that he could be questioned ahead of the trial, but he needed to decide on whether he could be called as a witness. In his ruling, he wrote, Without question, the circumstance is traumatic for the child. However, the charge is a Class A felony. This child appears to be a critical witness. The court cannot deny the defendant's right to present testimony from the child, or at least to conduct discovery with respect to the child's position. The court will take any steps possible to protect the child and make the situation less stressful. Eventually, it was decided that Tristan could be called as a witness. By September 16, 2019, the jury were seated and the murder trial was ready to begin. During opening statements, prosecutor Maureen Hughes laid out the prosecution's case. They believed that Todd had plotted to kill Amy after learning about her affair. She said that Todd was terrified that he would lose the farm if Amy divorced him, and that being a farmer meant everything to Todd. Todd needed to find a way to ensure that he could keep the farm if Amy ever did leave him. Amy had previously had an affair, and they had reconciled. But in July 2018, the defendant knew she was having another affair. He confronted Amy, and she denied it, but that just wasn't good enough for him. There was still a lot of tension and distrust, and the defendant had to do something. Over time, this kept weighing on the defendant. He wasn't going to let Amy get away with cheating on him again, and more importantly, he wasn't going to let Amy take half of his farm. Speaking of Amy, Prosecutor Hughes said, She was fearful of the defendant. She was afraid that if Todd found out she was in an affair, he would kill her. Prosecutor Hughes then went on to detail the problems in Amy and Todd's marriage. Now, you're going to hear a lot about Todd and Amy's relationship before this happened. 
And you're going to hear about how Amy was fearful of the defendant, how she told her friends and family members that she was planning on leaving him, but that she was afraid that if he found out she was having an affair, he would kill her. And she also told another friend that he would make her disappear. But wait, that's not all. Because what you're also going to hear is that the way that we know that the defendant planned this was after the police executed a search warrant on his house. They collected the defendant's iPad that is connected to his personal Gmail account. And they were able to see searches in the months before Amy's death, proof that he was planning to kill Amy, looking up things like how to kill unfaithful women. Defense attorney Gerald Feuerhelm agreed with the prosecution that the farm was important to Todd. I believe you'll hear testimony from Todd that his marriage was important, his children were important, the, the farm life was important to him, but not so important that he's going to murder mother of his children and his wife. The defense revealed during opening statements that they were not disputing that Amy had been killed, but instead they were disputing who had carried it out. Defense attorney Feuerhelm said that Amy had been viciously and deliberately murdered, but accepted that the jury would find reasonable doubt that the killer was Todd. The prosecution called on several witnesses to testify about the troubled marriage, including Amy's brother and stepmother, who told the jury about the affair and Todd's anger when he found out. Tristan was the third witness to testify. It was decided that he would not need to testify in the packed courtroom, as it would be much too traumatic for the teenage boy who had found his mother's dead body. Instead, his testimony was shown via closed-circuit television. He said that the day had started out exactly like his father had claimed. We put our plates in the sink and we, were, we went outside. Who did you go outside with? My dad. And where did you go when you went outside? To the uh, hog building. Did your mom eventually, did your mom at some point come outside? Yes. And approximately, do you know what time you went outside? I can't remember, but I think it was 9.30. How long after did your mom come outside? About two, three minutes. Do you remember what your mom was wearing that day? Uh, she was wearing a shirt, sweatshirt, winter coat, and a pair of pants. Now, you said that you and your dad went to the hog barn? Yes. Where did your mom go? To the same one. When you went to the hog barn, what were you doing? Uh, we were preparing the barn for infant uh, pigs. So at that point, were there pigs in the barn? No. So what were you doing inside the hog barn? Um, we, I was carrying heaters since it's in the wintertime, it gets cold, and they can get sick and die, so you, we have to carry feeders that, um, or heaters, sorry, uh, heaters that heat the pigs so they can stay warm. What was your dad doing inside the hog barn? He was um, putting down these bars that um, imitates a sow so that the pigs don't, they get, um, basically it weans them. Now this hog barn that you were in, can you just describe it to us a little bit? What does it look like? It's kind of an open barn. It's it's got a roof on it, but um, it's about about a hundred about a football field long. Um, you know, it's got 24 pins in a barn, 12 on each side. Um, there's a small alleyway that you can walk through to get to one end of the barn to the other. 
Um, it's pretty much, there's feeders in each of the pens that has a water system connected to it. What was your mom doing after she came out to the hog barn? She was um, cleaning uh, light bulb fixtures. And how was she doing that? Um, so she would get on a bucket, a five-gallon bucket, and then she would reach up to these uh, the light bulbs in the ceiling, and there would be this little glass oval that would go around the light bulb, and it would um, basically protect the light bulb from being broken and glass discarded on the ground. So sometimes there would be flies that get in the uh, light fixtures, so she would clean those out. So would it be fair to say that all three of you were doing different things in the barn? Yes. Where were Taylor and Wyatt while the three of you were working in the hog barn? In the house. And was anybody else on the farm? No. What happened then? Um, my mom, uh, she kind of, uh, she, she said she was getting dizzy, and she said that she was bleeding because she had had a surgery a few days prior to that day. And so, you know, we just, you know, she just said that she was dizzy and bleeding. So, um... And then she kind of like was getting, she said she was getting really dizzy. So we asked her what was wrong and she said it was nothing. Tristan and his father were cleaning out the hog pen while his mother helped by doing some other chores around the farm. He testified that his father then asked his mother to go and retrieve a pet carrier from the shed. Tristan then left the hog pen momentarily to get a drink of water. During this time, he did not have sight of his father. He said that when he returned to the hog pen, his father asked him to go out and check on his mother. He recalled, She was just inside the door. She was on her hands and knees, face down. I yelled for my dad. Now, Tristan, you swore to tell the truth today, correct? Yes. And as Judge Bitter asked you, you know what that means? Yes. And you're under oath right now? Yes. Now... Did you also swear to tell the truth last week when you did a deposition to talk about these same things? Yes. Tristan, during that deposition, you and you estimated that you were out of your dad's sight for an approximately an hour, I'm sorry, one minute and 40 seconds. Yes. Was that accurate when you gave that testimony? No. During Tristan's deposition, he said his father was out of sight for around one minute and 40 seconds. However, during his testimony, he said that this was inaccurate, and he really couldn't judge how long his father was out of sight. It was the prosecution's theory that when Tristan went to get water, Todd killed Amy and then let Tristan find the body so that suspicion would not fall on him. Under cross-examination, Tristan said that he did not see any tears on his father's face, nor did he see any blood on his clothing. He further said that before finding his mother deceased, his father didn't seem distraught. Todd Mullis was called to testify during his own murder trial. Defense Fewerhelm asked the question that had been on everyone's mind. Todd, did you ambush your wife, brutally beat her, and chop her up with a corn fork? He replied, no, I did not. Defense Fewerhelm then asked, do you know who did? And he responded, I have no idea. Todd then spoke about the suspicious Google searches on his iPad, telling the jury that three other people had access to the iPad, including Amy. He stated, She's the one who put the password in there for me. Todd was then asked about the Google searches related to cheating. He responded, I have no idea who looked that up. Four days before Amy was killed, somebody had researched organ locations. According to Todd, he and his daughter, Taylor, had been researching for Amy's surgery, which had taken place that day. 
Another Google search was for gaping chest wounds, and Todd claimed that Taylor had been going through a hunter program that had been researching. Todd acknowledged that he had searched for the terms thrill of the kill and once you hunt man, you'll always feel the thirst. He claimed that he and Amy had watched a movie together and had heard the quote. He said that he was simply trying to find the origin of the quote. You indicated you recognized those. Yes. And, and what did they relate to? There was a quote stated in a movie, and it was actually ended up being an Ernest Hemingway quote, and we were trying to remember what it was. Do you remember what the name of the movie was? Uh, I think it was Predators. Testimony then turned to the day that Amy was killed. He was asked if he knew anybody who would want to kill his wife. He said that he didn't. Todd was then asked if he had heard any kind of struggle or Amy screaming after she went to retrieve the pet carrier. Todd said that he didn't. He also said that he didn't hear any vehicle pull up or hear any footsteps outside. Todd was then asked why he had put Amy into the car and began to drive instead of calling 911 immediately. He replied, I am a doer. I just wanted to help her and go to the hospital. There was something wrong. Todd then went on to speak about his interview with investigators. They had said that Todd appeared to be emotionless and that he never denied killing Amy. Todd said that in his mind, he had denied the assertion that he was responsible for Amy's murder, but that the rapid-fire interrogation style had left little room for a response. He told the jury, he wouldn't give me a chance to say two words. Before Todd stood down, the prosecution played a short segment from his 911 call. It was when Todd was performing CPR on his wife. Okay, so when they tell you to do uh, chest compressions, your half of your body's in the car, that's what you're doing. You're using your mouth and your hands to do that. I did not use my mouth. Oh, I'm sorry, so you're just, uh, you're just pressing. Where's Tristan at that point? I told him to go stand by the road for when they to flag them down if they're coming. So as you're doing those chest compressions, is anyone else there initially? No. And you're holding onto that phone and you're doing the chest compressions? I had my shoulder holding my phone against my ear. So at that point, the only, the only people in the car are you and Amy, right? Yes. There was a distorted whisper, and the prosecution suggested that it was Todd whispering, cheating whore. Todd denied that he had whispered that. No. So you don't remember what you whispered? No. Following Todd's testimony, the defense and prosecution rested their cases. During closing arguments, Prosecutor Hughes asserted that it was impossible for somebody else other than Todd to murder his wife. She said that for somebody else to have committed the murder, they would have needed to know that Amy was alone in the shed and then kill her without her husband or son ever noticing. She said to the jury, how would this person know that Amy was going to the shed? Is there somebody waiting there, hoping that there is a murder weapon there? She once again referred to the Google search terms and argued that this was evidence that Todd may have been thinking about killing somebody for quite some time. Prosecutor Hughes suggested that Todd had planned the murder and then waited for Amy to have surgery, which would make the perfect excuse as to why she had fallen on the corn rake. 
During defense attorney Feuerhelm's closing arguments, he questioned the validity of the statements Amy had made to friends regarding her fear of her husband. He characterized them as Amy attempting to slander her husband as a way to justify her affair. Feuerhelm stated, Amy is justifying her actions. She is making Todd the bad guy. He also said that anybody could have snuck into the shed and killed Amy when she disturbed them. He went on to accuse the investigation of being far too narrow, alleging that investigators had zoned in on Todd as the main suspect without looking into the possibility that it could have been somebody else. The defense and the prosecution had offered two very polarizing theories as to who killed Amy. It was now up to the jury to reach a determination on Todd's guilt. They deliberated for around seven and a half hours before returning with a verdict. Okay, this is the state of Iowa versus Todd Michael Mullis, Delaware County case FECR 012941. We, the jury, find the defendant, Todd Michael Mullis, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree, signed by the jury foreperson. They found Todd Mullis guilty of the murder of Amy Mullis. As the verdict was read aloud, Todd shook his head while Amy's family hugged one another. The guilty verdict came with a mandatory sentence of life in prison. Todd was given the opportunity to speak. Mr. Mullis, you have the right to speak today if you'd like to. You're not required to. Your attorney has uh, spoken on your behalf. This is the only chance you'll get to speak today before I present, uh, before, before I pronounce judgment. Is there anything you would like to say today? I did not do this. Uh, this is supposed to be America where you have a fair chance of proving your innocence. We shouldn't have to prove your innocence instead of the other way around. I thought it was guilty until, or not, uh, innocent until proven guilty. I feel this is the other way around. And I was a faithful and loving husband, and I never did this. In March the following year, Todd filed a motion requesting a new trial. In the motion, he wrote that his defense attorney had blatantly disregarded his specific guidance to not categorize Amy's death as a homicide. He had wanted them to suggest that it was, in fact, an accident. He also argued that his defense attorney did not inform him that he did not need to testify during the trial. In the motion, Todd asserted that the weight of the evidence was contrary to the guilty verdicts. He hired two new attorneys, Aaron Hamrock and Matthew Knipe, who said, The defendant is alleged to have run the length of more than a football field, attack and kill another human being, and run the length of another football field in the same amount of time that it took for the defendant's son to get a single drink of water. The motion was denied. A couple of months later, Peggy and Randy Munson, Amy's mother and stepfather, filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Todd. They requested that they be reasonably compensated for their damages, as well as compensation for Amy's estate and Amy and Todd's three children. The lawsuit contended that Todd had breached his duty of care to the plaintiffs by stabbing Amy Lynn Mullis to death. The lawsuit is still pending. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. 
For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.